Welcome to the Pregnancy Help Podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from Jarrell Godsey, the president of Heartbeat International, and he's talking to Mark Newman, the author of Contenders. This episode is brought to you by Option Line, a 24-7 pregnancy helpline. Option Line connects women and men with pregnancy-related questions to the life-affirming pregnancy help that's near them. Option Line consultants can even schedule appointments for centers, providing real-time assistance to women when they need it the most. Our consultants are equipped to handle those tough calls even when the center's doors are closed. Through phone, text, email, and chat, OptionLine provides women with the immediate care they want, and they connect them with pregnancy help organizations for long-lasting relationships that they need to make healthy choices in their lives. Visit OptionLine.org to learn more. Welcome, Dr. Mark Newman, uh, to the Pregnancy Help Podcast. I'm excited to have you on. I I first heard... uh, Mark speak at a conference I was attending and I thought, wow, like that guy really knows his stuff. And, you know, I think he's, I think he's studied a little bit about this speaking thing. And then, all, then, then found out later that not only did he study, he teaches it, you know, he's a former director of speech and debate at the University of California at Irvine. He's been uh, a tremendous uh, speaker on the pro-life cause and other uh, causes that we would uh, agree with values that we share. And currently is a president of speaker for life and a training firm dedicated to equipping pro-life advocates nationwide uh, in their messaging and public speaking skills. And so it's a delight to have him with us here on the Pregnancy Help Podcast. It is a pleasure to be here, Jarrell. Well, I appreciate you joining us. I, I know that you could talk on many things for quite a while, but we don't have that long. Um, <laughs> it's an occupational hazard. I know. And, and, and not only that, it would be interesting and I would it'd be quite informative. I do know that. And so we may have you back for other things. But today I really want to talk about your book, which came out last year. Uh, well, maybe now is, tw- was it 2020? So, uh-huh. Okay, I haven't quite moved myself into 22. I so. haven't either. <laughs> so it's it about, came, about 18 months old right now. There we go. So it came out, and and what what's really interesting, so the book is Contenders, a churchwide strategy to unmask abortion, defeat its advocates, empower Christians, and if that were not enough, change the world, right? So right. Um, a very uh, powerful title and an important book uh, that I had the privilege to read even before it was published, but um, it, it's one of those things that, wow, I, I knew it was important at the time that you've published it, finished it, put it out. And here we are on the, in a year where some amazing things may happen with, with the Dobbs case. We're seeing the Heartbeat Texas bill uh, kind of continue. You know, that was a surprise to all of us from last September. And here we're facing into Dobbs, which frankly could be a sea change for the uh, pro-life movement for uh, abortion law and and uh, all that that means, in which case a book like Contenders is going to be that much more important. I hope that's the case. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the Supreme Court does with Dobbs. You know, they could go ahead and completely overturn Roe versus Wade and overturn Casey and return the question of abortion back to the states, which is just going to really um, complicate in a really good way the pro-life movement. Right now, you know, we've been so focused on a national push. Uh, and now it's going to become a, literally a 50 state, state by state battle. Um, and of course, like you said, that's not the only issue that's out there. I think it's intriguing that the Supreme Court has not yet ruled on the heartbeat bill in mm-hmm. Texas. And there are a lot of pro-life advocates like myself who are believing that this is a signal mm-hmm. that they aren't going to bother to do it because if they overturn over his weight, of course, um, then there won't be any problem with that bill. And you mentioned that it's going to be a state by state battle. And in some ways, and I, I actually, your, 
you talked about this in your book about how really uh, you use this, which is one of my favorite quotes in your book. And there are many, uh, there are many awesome quotes in your book. You said national statistics are numbers, local statistics are neighbors. Now, mm -hmm. that's a powerful point uh, for someone speaking and messaging on this issue. But it also, I think, speaks to us about this won't be just a state conversation. There'll be state battles, but it, it, but that state battle will create local conversations, community conversations, and the opportunity, regardless of where, where this ends up getting settled, it's going to create opportunity to speak on the issue to those in our community. Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating. Actually, it will drop down to the local level. And this is why I think it's so important for all of us to be equipped to be able to message on this issue, especially those people who are messengers in the church. It's got to start there. If it doesn't start there, it's probably not going to go anywhere. So we need to reach out to not just pastors, but also lay leaders in the church. But once we have those, those local conversations and it makes changes locally, makes changes statewide, once there are enough states who understand what's truly at stake in the abortion issue, and once they decide that they're going to become a life-affirming state, once we get to enough of those states, it's really funny. People keep saying, well, we're never going to be able to make a change in California. We're never going to be able to make a change in, uh, in New York. That's not true. Hmm. Once enough states become life-affirming, then we can revisit this as a national question, revisit it as, a, as an issue for a human life amendment, for example, and then truly make it national and have a life-affirming nation. So it's funny how by overturning Roe versus Wade, we return this question back to the states, which of course spills out into all the localities. We message properly on this issue. We change people's hearts, which changes people's actions. And then if we can do it well enough in enough states, we can come back and, uh, and create a national environment that is, uh, is positive for the lives of our unborn neighbors. And one of the best ways to do that is make sure that we are messaging it well, which is really what, really what your book is about, what your passion and heart has been about. Uh, it's not just, just pro-life apologetics and debating the issue, although those, those things are critical skills to have. It's also messaging well into those moments where you have either um, – you know, that, that uh, soundbite to deliver to that reporter or to that community uh, leader, or you have an opportunity to really unpack the, the situation. So this is another good reason why I, I was delighted to really champion your book uh, when I saw it. I really did think uh, that it's something that should be on every, it should be on every uh, believer's book reading list to, to engage, because I think you unpack uh, a lot of things in a way that that is that is engaging because it, it you you go after some of the hard conversations you structure you know you structure it, you give out i think you're like giving out some of your some of your uh, tricks of the trade you know some things you've learned along the way and you're you're like letting us in on things that it's taken you kind of years to hone and to to refine and so it's a, i re very much appreciate that let's talk about the issue as it plays out in the church that's you said that as well it's like it's our our faith community is going to have to rise up and speak to this and this has been one of the areas i think has probably been a constant source of disappointment is that pastors faith leaders are not speaking strongly enough to this issue you know it's interesting i interviewed a, a host of pregnancy center directors in the creation of this book and one of the questions that i asked them was if there was something you had to say to a, a pastor about your work, what would it be? Now, it's really funny because uh, pregnancy center directors, pregnancy help organization folk, they, um, they're mavericks, so they don't actually answer the question. They answer the question the way they wanted to answer it, which was, 
what I would like all the pastors to know is that we want them speaking about this issue. It literally was the number one response to that question. They want them to speak because they, they know that they're not. Now, in the first half of, uh, or the first third of the book, we address the issue of messaging in the church and why it's been done so poorly for so long. And, and I want to let you know, pastors are under tremendous pressure from congregations, and we are not the only 501c3 organization that would like to find our way into their pulpits. The, but the fact of the matter is a lot of pastors are afraid to talk about this issue for, I've list out about eight different reasons, but some of the major ones are things like they're afraid it's going to be too political. They're afraid it's going to be too divisive. They're afraid it's going to harm uh, the people in their congregation to make them feel bad. Um, so there's all these reasons that pastors have where they don't want to dive in and talk about the issue. And I have to let you know, if they were true, I could understand it. But once you really evaluate the rationale that pastors have for why they don't preach about abortion from the pulpit, uh, we recognize that not only are, are the reasons not true, but they actually harm the very people the pastors are in their hearts trying to protect, right? Uh, it, it's, of course, abortion is a divisive issue. Uh, all truth is divisive. It divides the world into people who are supportive of the truth and people who are opposed to the truth. You're always going to be divisive when you make a truth claim. Of course, abortion is going to uh, harm the hearts of people who ha are post-abortive, but the fact of the matter is that many people, I mean, Jarell, I'm sure you've run into this many times during the course of your career. I'll go speak somewhere, and someone will walk up to me and confess an abortion from their past mm -hmm. that maybe 30 years ago, and they tell me, I have never told anybody about this. So the silence in the church actually creates a prison for people in the church that they can't find a way out of. They believe that the pastor's silence on abortion before they have an abortion is tacit approval of abortion, because after all, if it was really bad, he'd say something about it. But then immediately following an abortion, the enemy jumps on their shoulder and says, ah, come on, you knew. You knew all along that this was going to take the life of an unborn human being. And you want to know why the pastor doesn't talk about it? Because this is that sin that can't be forgiven. And so why bother talking about a sin that can't be forgiven? And so the enemy places people in thrall to their own sin and, and makes them believe that they're not fit for the kingdom, that they, they don't have any place in the kingdom, can't do any good kingdom work. And when pastors gain the courage necessary to stand up in the pulpit and speak about abortion from the pulpit, recognizing that it is not primarily a political issue, but it's primarily a spiritual issue that has political ramifications, Right then people find that kind of freedom um, and forgiveness that they're looking for. You know, the research that I've seen from Barna indicate that most women don't believe that when pastors preach about forgiveness from the pulpit, that abortion is included in that forgiveness. They don't think that that's for them. And, and they also believe that, you know, they're the only ones in church that have ever had an abortion. And so this, this feeling of isolation, this feeling of unforgiveness um, really crushes people. And we need to be about um, preaching liberation. We want to help people to avoid making a bad decision. But for those people who have made that bad decision, we need to help them to find forgiveness in Christ and find uh, not just their own personal redemption, but then to give them a voice to speak to others so that they can avoid making similar mistakes in the future. And that's, and it's counterintuitive uh, to, to, to think that, like you said, that they're trying to, they ultimately are harming the individuals that they're trying to protect 
and they're they're muting the message that the church needs to proclaim. You started this by saying, "Well, we're not the only 501c3." Yes, that that that's true, and certainly pregnancy centers. Well, they're the best 501c3s, as far as I'm yes. concerned. But there's this there's this message that that is really one of God's truth, God's value for life, the sanctity of life. That's what's not being spoken. That's not what's not being championed. Someone. Mark, my conversion to pro-life position occurred in an instant. Uh, I had an abortion myself as a, with my girlfriend as a teenager. Short, a couple years later, I became a, a believer and was sitting in a church, and the pastor, visiting pastor, came and he said these words, uh, and I will never forget them, never forget the moment. I, f- I feel the senses, sensation I had when I heard these moments. He said, abortion is not a uh, social issue. And I, I was like incredulous. I'm like, of course it is. Like I, I, I didn't know much, but I, I knew that it was had social reality. And then he said, kind of what you said, abortion is not a political issue. And I was like, what? Of course it is. And then he said, this abortion is a gospel issue. And in that moment, I began to began to understand the depth of this issue as as an affront to God's kingdom, God's people, and God's church. And why aren't churches proclaiming it more often? That that's kind of been a I think that's what you hear in the heart of the pregnancy centers is why aren't churches speaking and proclaiming this, um, not just the work of pregnancy centers, but the reality of abortion, the issue that that women are facing and men are facing. I think for a lot of pastors, they've bought into the lie that if you don't have a uterus, you don't get an opinion, Mm. right? This has been preached so loudly uh, in the secular media that men don't have any business talking about this because it's a woman's issue. They buy into this lie. A lot of pastors are ill-equipped to talk about the issue. They've not studied it. And I got to be honest, when you look at a book like David Boonin's book, A Defense of Abortion, and that big, thick philosophical tome, it's easy to look at that and feel overwhelmed, feel like you could, you're never going to be able to grasp this issue well. But the fact of the matter is the abortion issue is not a complex issue. The abortion issue at its core is an unbelievably simple issue, um, which can be phrased out in, in three clear sentences, which is it's wrong to intentionally kill an, an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. This, of course, is what people refer to as the syllogism, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's it, like any other deductive syllogism. If the premises are true and the uh, argument is constructed properly, uh, the the conclusion is inescapable. So it's not a difficult um, it's not difficult subject uh, to master in terms of its basics. But then what pastors are afraid of is that people are going to start asking them questions that they can't answer. And my response to that is, well, do what you've always done your whole life. Study a little mm-hmm. bit, right? So if we can study, we can learn uh, how the how the argument is framed and how it rolls out. And one of the things that I did in that book in this book is I talked about um, abortion as a chain of argument. Right, that we start with the idea of, you know, our opponents get up and say, well, it's not even a human being. Now, I got to be honest, most of our opponents aren't saying that anymore because they realize, I mean, it's just argumentative death. You're going to, you're going to be pinned to the wall in, a, in just a matter of moments. So, uh, what they do except, is they, except Sotomayor, right? I think, I think she yeah. still missed that point. <sighs> Don't get me started on her. <laughs> um, we'll get to Dobbs, I think, a little bit more, maybe a little later. But, um, but yeah, people start there and then they say, oh, okay, you know, it is a human being. Everybody knows that embryology teaches us it's a human being, right? More Persaud and Torture in their book, The Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology, a longstanding embryological textbook, uh, speaks very, very clearly that that every one of our individual lives began at the moment of conception. So everybody knows that that what's in a woman's body from the moment of conception is a human being. The question that they ask then is, is it a person? 
right? And what a, uh, a pernicious argument, frankly, this is, right? Christopher mm-hmm. Kayser says that in every single case where human beings have constructed a uh, distinction between human beings and human persons, in other words, we have human non-persons and then we have human persons. He says every single time, 100% of the time, without exception, it has been deemed that a moral catastrophe has taken place. Mm-hmm. So why in the world do we think we get it right here, right? Well, we don't. So we talk in the book about the, the four um, Schwartz in his book talks about the four different distinctions that um, abortion choice advocates make trying to determine that, you know, what's in the woman's body is not a, not a human person, right? Size, um, level of um, development, environment, degree of dependency, and concludes that none of these are arguments that are morally significant in determining whether or not somebody should live, right? We don't determine that somebody's got more life than others because of how big they are. We don't determine it because you have abilities that other people don't have. We don't determine it on the basis of where you happen to be located. And we certainly don't determine it on on how dependent you are. As a matter of fact, exactly the opposite is true, right? Everywhere except in the womb, dependence is an argument for greater legal protection, Mm, not less, right? That's why we have the Americans with Disability Act, for example. So we walk them through through personhood. And by the way, by the time we get done with personhood, there's no way to manipulate that syllogism in such a way that would make uh, the abortion choice advocacy position correct. So what they do then is they abandon it and they start talking about what we call hard cases, rape, incest, threat to the life of the mother. And so we, we talk about how we handle those issues. Then they go, oh, well, okay, well, if, if, if how we were conceived really doesn't have an impact on what we actually are and why we're valuable, well, then I'm going to shift gears and we'll talk about the impact of the pregnancy on the woman. And this is where you get all the economic arguments, the relational arguments, the emotional arguments, uh, the economic arguments, all of those. And then we, we walk through those, even though you shouldn't have to, right. right? Because none of those are relevant in terms of whether or not it's okay it's morally permissible to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And then finally, of course, at the end of that section, we just rip the mask off and say, you know, there's a lot of people out there that just want to abort children and they don't care what the arguments are. They just want to do it. And you've seen it most recently on the, on, uh, on the news where you saw those women. Now, I don't know if those were really abortion pills they were taking, mm-hmm. and I okay. don't know if they were really pregnant or not. I frankly, I frankly doubt it, but let's say that they were look at the brazenness of that. These are not people who don't know what they're doing. These are people who know exactly what they're doing and believe that we ought to celebrate what they're doing and that anybody who doesn't get on board is, is part of the problem. In that vein, and you call this out in contenders, you, you make the statement very strongly, and I don't think it can be said strongly enough, abortion is idolatry. Yes. Uh, it, it, and, it, and we see it has, and at the very least has the features of idolatry. I, I, even in reviewing your book, I, I, it, it had just occurred Michelle Williams, the actor, had stood up and, you know, with clutching a golden award <laughs> and then making the claim about how, abor- how abortion helped her career. It's like, boy, it's like all the elements were, were present in that moment and are, and are really present in the, in this, um, in kind of that, radicalness that you see of the the woman taking the pill on 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 news on the news uh, they did this by the way I, you know i had the privilege of being on the steps of the supreme court during oral arguments and apparently i didn't see it i saw it later on the news but near us was a group of them doing that supposedly uh as a as an act of um of defiance so to speak they were they were willingly killing and you're right I, and there's a part where the uh those that are radically 
aligned for abortion that really are truly expecting abortion on demand for any reason at any time uh, are the ones that we probably will never convince. But there's a lot that we can because I think a lot of people have been swayed by some of these arguments that they haven't had a chance to think them through. And you, you really run after them hard. Uh, and, and you, you really, like you said, rip the mask off. And one of the points that you make is that the, the really the best explanation for the resistance pro-life advocates encounter when they talk about abortion can be summed up in three words, cognitive dissonance theory, right? So you like, and, and that's what really is behind what mostly what people will encounter. Yes. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, people have a tremendous capacity to hold conflicting views in their heads at the same time, and it creates a lot of uh, stress. So the, the problem really is, is that most of us don't think much about abortion at all. Um, and those who do, the vast majority of them, they think in what I call bumper stickers. They don't really make arguments. They just have bumper sticker statements mm. like my body, my choice. Don't want an abortion. Don't ha- or don't like abortion, don't have one, right? These aren't arguments. They're just bumper stickers. And I think the idea that the pe- that abortion choice supporters and advocates don't have to justify or argue for their position is a weakness from the pro-life movement. We find ourselves constantly playing defense, and I think we need to be playing a lot more offense because the fact of the matter is they don't have the evidence to back up what they have to say. Now, because cognitive dissonance, which, by the way, is the psychological stress that people experience when anchor beliefs that they have come into conflict with new information, when we can create that stress in a heartbeat, <laughs> all you have to do is walk in and say the words abortion. And suddenly uh, if people are, are abortion rights supporters, abortion choice advocates. They're going to feel that stress. And then what we outline in the book is that people have six different ways of dealing with that stress. One of the ways is they simply avoid new information, which you know people will just go out of their way not to encounter uh, well, the pro-life big, message. Big tech is helping with that, right? They're, they're helping Absolutely. people avoid new by censoring. Sure. Right. But the saddest part is so is the church. Mm, yeah. The church is helping people to avoid by not speaking about the issue. And that allows people to maintain, um, you know, even if the pastor didn't want to talk about abortion because of the political elements. I would think you'd want to talk about it just from the truth elements, right? We're supposed to tell people the truth and our culture is just flat out lying to people. And we ought to be, you know, the purveyors of truth in our culture. We ought to be uphold that standard. So, but people will avoid it. People will hear the information. They'll twist it to fit what they already believe. Uh, People will hear the information, but they don't hear it often enough so that they set it off to the side and don't want to think about it anymore. And that allows them to continue on in their previous way of thinking and acting. Some people will um, just devalue uh, the new information. Some people will rationalize it and say, well, it doesn't really apply to me. But uh, finally, some people will hear the new information and go, you know what? That's true. And I'm going to abandon the way I used to think and I'm going to adopt the new, the new way of thinking. Now, what I tell the people that I train is you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that out of the six different ways people have to respond to the cognitive dissonance we create by talking about abortion, in five out of the six ways, they maintain their old way of thinking. And what I try to explain to people is persuasion is hard. If we want to persuade people, this is why pastors cannot get up and say, oh, I, I've already preached about abortion. Yeah, I did it in 2005, I think, on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, once after telling everybody before the sermon was going to happen what I would be preaching about so that they could make sure that if they were going to be uncomfortable by that sermon, they could just go to another church or just not attend that Sunday, which is why when I preach in churches, I ask the pastors right up front, 
please don't tell anybody that I'm coming to preach about abortion. Matter of fact, I've got a title for my sermon that's great. It's called A City Full of Idols because nobody thinks they're an idolater, right? So, oh, yeah, we should go and listen to what all those terrible idolaters are doing. Okay. And then we start talking about you know, Old Testament Molech worship, right? In Old Testament Molech worship, there was already a temple or there was already a tabernacle. People had the ability to go and inquire of God, right? And so if they had problems, they could, they could inquire of God. The problem is the God of the Israelites, he was not the kind of God that you bargained with. You know what I mean? He's the mm-hmm. kind of God that you listened to and obeyed. So if you knew that the answer you were going to get was probably not the one you wanted, then you would just go up to the high place because even though God, I've just finished reading through the Pentateuch, even though God commanded Israel to destroy all of the high places, to burn all of the molten gods, they never quite did it. And so if you had this question, maybe you could go up the hill to get a second opinion from another God, right? And the priest of Molech would meet you and you could pour out your problems to them. Maybe your crops weren't doing well or whatever. And he'd say, not a problem. My great God, Molech, we can solve your problem. All you got to do is come on up and bring your kid. Mm-hmm. And so people would bring their child up. And in order for the sacrifice to be valuable, no tears could be shed. So they would hand the child over. Now you can imagine the child's going to scream because he's going to be placed in the arms of a molten God with a big fire burning in the belly of the idol. And the thing was made out of bronze. So it was very, very hot. So they would beat drums really, really loudly so that it would drown out the screams of the children. And then they would make these sacrifices in hopes of getting something. Nothing has changed. We now walk into an abortion clinic and the, the, the woman has problems. She doesn't come to her pastor, by the way. And research over and over again says women will not come to their pastors, which is why pregnancy help organizations are so needed. And it's not because the pastors are bad or the pastors are going to give that woman bad advice, but it's, it's you, pregnancy help organizations. They are like, um, they're like the mission group that speaks the indigenous language. Mm. And, and we don't send our pastors to go into countries where they don't speak that language. Why would we do that here? The women want to come to a place where people have subject matter expertise, have a long history of compassion, and we have that in the pregnancy help organization movement. So, But if they, if they did come to the church, right, they, they got a pretty good idea what the pastor is going to say. So instead, they go to another place down the street where they meet with the priest of Molech. They don't call him that, but that's what they are. And they make them a deal. They say, oh, you, you're telling me you're going to lose your boyfriend? You tell me you're going to lose your scholarship? You're not going to be able to complete uh, college? You're not going to be able to get that uh, promotion you were looking for? Don't worry about it. We can take care of all that. All you have to do is walk down the yellow line and give us your child. So she gets up on the altar, which is made out of stainless steel. The priest comes with his own instruments. They don't have to beat drums anymore because the child is going to be killed in the silence of his or her mother's womb. We're just much more effective child killers than the Moloch worshipers were mm. actually built surgical instruments designed to do, to perform that function. And then when the child comes out, where do they place it most of the time? If they don't sell it for uh, to sell that child's body, by the way, that child who the woman was told was just a blob of tissue and not a human being now suddenly is a valuable human being whose body parts can be sold for money. But if they don't sell them for money, it goes into a medical incinerator, right? Sound mm. familiar? Yes, it does. It's not like Molech worship. It is Molech worship. C.S. Lewis told us in the screw tape letters, right? That, um, that our, 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 uh, our orders from the high command are to conceal ourselves. That demon says, right? We don't get the advantage of making magicians, but it's really, really effective because these people don't, they don't even perceive us. They just think they're worshiping forces. And so the women come in, 
it doesn't say First Church of Moloch over the top, but everything's the same. They have a problem, that, and they think that the only way to solve the problem is to get rid of their unborn child. That if they do that, it'll solve uh, the, the, the difficulties that they're facing. But you and I both know, and as, and as does everybody who works in pregnancy help organizations that has post-abortion counseling, that many women go on to, to regret it, that many relationships still get blown apart. Uh, I just need to emphasize that even if the woman after the abortion thinks it was the best thing that ever happened to her in her life, like Michelle Williams said, that doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. She still sacrificed the life of her own unborn child in order, to, in order to advance her own career. And at some point, the full weight of that is going to uh, be manifest to her. I don't know how long it'll take, but at some point, I think that will happen. And the good news there, if there is good news, is that the God of the universe is ready to meet them there and provide mercy and care and um, extend forgiveness. If if they're willing to seek it, he is willing to provide it. That's the, Absolutely. That's the good side of that, uh, as I said, if there is. Now, one of the things I... One of the things we have in common, I, I, I don't know if we, we haven't talked about this a great deal, but we both have sons named Joel. Yes. And, uh, I, you know, in, in your book, and as, as if you haven't picked up on this already, you actually make this statement, which I thought I, I, when I was rereading this, just uh, uh, preparing for our conversation, I realized, wow, this is pretty bold. You said, get into arguments. Um, yes. You go on to say, speak up and engage the will. And I think it's all about this kind of like take advantage and bring it to them. That's that offensive effort. And you know what you just dialogued about the, uh, the, the reality of Moloch worship as part of that, the, the issues of abortion and women suffering from abortions. You know, you, you didn't mention earlier, you're, you were on the kind side of the issues that woman was presenting to the abortionist, but sometimes it's, I'm being trafficked. Uh, I, you know, I, I've, I've been, so I'm, I'm suffering, I'm being forced to coerce. And of course they are not sympathetic. Uh, to those things. They're only sympathetic to uh, to abortion. So we need to get into arguments. We need to bring this message to people. And again, that's going to come, I think, even more important as we move into this, hopefully, a 50-state battle, community by community. We're going to need to be more aggressive and proactive in bringing the fight into the arena, because otherwise we'll just get shut out by being ignored, uh, by being uh, uh, marginalized. So we need to be uh, direct. And this is where I think the book is great and, and needs to be not just on the shelf, but needs to be actively read because you've unpacked some of it before, but there's a ton more uh, in, in the book that can help equip people. And I think it's worth not just reading, but rereading uh, and kind of kind of take, take that in. Um, how, how do you see this in the Dobbs world that we're looking into? How do you, how do you see it unfolding in, as we approach the summer? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I think it's important that even if we are going to get into arguments, and we do, getting into arguments does not mean that we have to be a jerk, right? <laughs> There's a lot of people out there, frankly, I hate to say it, who are arguing the abortion issue, and I wouldn't want to listen to them either because they're always sounding attacking and personal. What I tell everybody is, listen, we attack arguments, not people, right? When, when the Apostle Paul talks about you know tearing down strongholds and taking every thought captive, right? We're taking people captive. We want to help people come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and move out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's glorious light. We have to win those people. We do not have to be doormats either. So what I tell people to do is focus on the arguments. One of the best things about being a pro-life advocate is the evidence is on our side. So simply identify the arguments, ask people to justify their position and say, hey, if I can show you evidence on the other side that demonstrates that that is not true, would you be intellectually consistent and be willing to change your mind? 
Now, a lot of people aren't right away. Persuasion often happens incrementally over time. I was at the Genocide Awareness Project um, at uh, Cal State San Marcos, and I interacted with a young man. I address this. I talk about this in my book. And the guy gets up, and when we're all done, I mean, I've, I've just data dumped on him, all this evidence. And he said, I want to thank you for sharing your perspective. And he turned around and walked away. And I went, stop, come back. What, what, what? I said, I want to make something clear. I did not share my perspective. I just shared with you evidence from embryology. I just shared with you evidence from Planned Parenthood indicating that human life begins at conception. By the way, if you folks, have, if they've never seen it, um, and I'd be happy to provide this for people, this is a photocopy that I can send to people called Plan Your Children for Health and Happiness. I do happen to own uh, an original here. Uh, they asked the question, abortion, uh, birth control, is it an abortion? And their response is definitely not. An abortion kills the life of a baby after it has begun. It is dangerous to your life and health. It may make you sterile so that when you want a child, you cannot have it. Who published that? Well, Planned Parenthood, world population. This is what Planned Parenthood told every woman back then. And it's not a one-off. They also put out this little thing called the gift of life. This was published in 1951 by the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And it's a sex education manual. And it says, if one of the male sperm meets and unites with an egg cell, a new life begins. Does Planned Parenthood know when life begins? Yes. So as, as Dobbs rolls out, if it does go the right way, and which I firmly am believing that it's going to, uh, I, I've got you get some sense from uh, the chief justice that he would like to try to find a way to split the baby in half. But I got a feeling that uh, if it is going to go five, four, that I think that uh, that he will join the majority just so he can write the uh, the opinion, because right, the, the, the most senior member of the majority gets to write the opinion. Um, so I think if, if it gets overturned, we move into a 50 state battle. I think we have to do two things. Number one, we have to secure our gains in states that have trigger laws. So though there will be states that are going to immediately outlaw abortion as soon as Roe versus Wade is overturned. But please do not believe that, that the opponents of life are going to sit idly by and just let that happen. Robin Marty has a book out called Handbook for a Post-Roe America. And in this book, she lays out precisely the strategy they intend to engage in in order to get the camel's nose under the tent and reintroduce abortion in these uh, states that are going to have these trigger laws. So the first thing we need to do is, is we have to solidify our states so that we have clear pro-life states where people know why they are pro-life. We can't just rely on the law and go, well, the law's on our side, so we're good. We're not killing babies, so that's good. Folks, for many states who have those trigger laws, there's a state bordering them that, that won't. Right. We have to engage in an intellectual um, inoculation of especially our young people against abortion advocacy and ideology. It's not going to happen in sound bites. We have to make the case. It's got to start in the church and then it's got to move out into the culture. Then once we've got that established, we also need to be going out into these states that are hardcore, New York, California, Illinois, because now there is no barrier to passing uh, legislation that will limit or eliminate abortion. And so we need to be going in there and be and making that case. Now, you and I, Jarrell, know, right, because of cancel culture and everything else, we may find it very difficult to get on a campus, for example, but we should never find it difficult to get into churches. And then the people from the churches can get onto the campus. And we need to be rolling this out. We don't have millions and millions of dollars uh, you know, to advocate our position on the airwaves. But I will tell you this, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, the very next thing I want to see 
is is the federal government to defund Planned Parenthood and take away that $600 million that they're using right now to oppose us in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to get out there. And my friend um, Kirk Walden wrote a wonderful book called The Wall where he talks about how the how pregnancy help organizations can be wonderfully funded by, by only a fraction of people who want to check the, the, the box pro-life donating just a little bit. This is not beyond the reach. I think one of the reasons people haven't is they've just felt powerless. They felt there's nothing we can do. I'm telling you, there's a lot we can do, but we have to get on board with our pregnancy help organizations. We have to make sure they're fully funded. We have to put out more and more of them. You know, when I first started this, like you, Jarrell, if you'll recall, there was about 2,500 abortion clinics and about 700 pregnancy uh, help organizations. That's right. Now there's about 700 abortion clinics and over 2,600 pregnancy help organizations. So we're winning this battle and we have to keep winning folks. We please don't be like the person in the horror film where she picks up the shovel and smacks the serial killer in the head. He falls to the ground. And what does she do? Inevitably, right? she drops the shovel, screams and runs away. No, you keep hitting them with the shovel <laughs> till it goes away. So if it looks like we're winning, all I'm trying to tell you is that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, we're going to be on the 50 yard line. I don't want us to stop at the 50-yard line, at the 30-yard line, at the 20-yard line, at the five-yard line. We need to push all the way over into the end zone. We need to keep pushing till we get across the finish line. We want to create a culture that, that is affirming of life from the moment of conception until natural death. And we've got to be out there making the case for life, messaging in our churches, in our civic groups, in our schools and not allowing the other side to have free reign to say whatever they want. Excellent point. I, I, I don't know a better place to wrap up our, our time together than that. I, I Just one practical tip that I want to add into this, because largely this is the pregnancy help community that is digesting these podcasts. And, and you, you rightly mentioned the community and the, you know, all of those people, the youth, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But for, we can start with our own donors and our own supporters. I, 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 I'm concerned that some of our own donors think that, at that reversing row is the goal line. And that's not, you know, we know that, you know, those that live this day in and day out, we know that that's not the case and, and we will not finish. And, and the goal line really is until, until life is protected in law and in culture, right? So the, those things need to happen, but the, the ones that we can communicate with right now are the ones that are on our donor list and our database that we're, we're writing or should be writing newsletters and equipping them with the kind of messaging and the kind of arguments and the kind of, uh, uh understanding that you describe in your book, The Contender. So again, I, I, I bring back, uh, bring that back. I want to make sure, encourage everyone to get it, read it, buy it, maybe buy it, hand it to your pastor or your youth leader or anyone that, that you think, um, needs that information and needs to know that. So I appreciate it. Any last thoughts? Mark, Mark, what are you working on right now? What's what's going on that you're doing next? Uh, this is turning out to be the busiest year of my life. Uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, I'm keynoting a lot of fundraising banquets for pregnancy help organizations, and we're also teaching. I, I when I go out and do those, we often train pastors, and then we do. I usually do a three hour apologetics class in the evening for them, and I'm doing a number of those that aren't even associated with banquets. The applied bioethics program that was started by myself, uh, John Enser, and Scott Klusendorf has found a home at Cedarville University. So we'll be teaching two classes at Cedarville 
uh, this summer, and we'll also be teaching two classes at uh, South Florida Bible College. So we're starting to move into what I guess I would call uh, Pro-Life 3.0, where we're going to be professionalizing this movement and helping people to get college credit for learning how to defend the lives of the unborn. So all of those kinds of things are going on. It's, it's been, uh, it's been, been nutty, but, uh, but, but happily, you know, here we are. I do think we need to make these claims. I do think we need to go out to the pregnancy help organizations and help them to make these claims. And I think it's really important for them to understand. Let me tell you a brief story. Um, Jana Pinson down at the, uh, the pregnancy center, of the coastal bend told me the story. It was great. Uh, you know, after the Texas passed their heartbeat bill, woman comes in with her daughter, young daughter. Um, she's pregnant. Woman is livid, angry. Boy, you pro-life people, you're so terribly taking away the rights from my daughter. Now look at what you, you know, what, what you, you know, look at her. She's pregnant. So they get her up on the ultrasound table. They put that wand on her. And mom and now grandma see the baby on the ultrasound screen. Mom's heart melts. Now they're both in parenting classes, right? This is what we're going to see more of. We don't need less resources if Dobbs is upheld. We are going to need to double, triple, quadruple our resources because a lot of people who would have gone to an abortion clinic are now going to want to know, are you going to put feet to what you said? Do you really care about women who are experiencing untimely pregnancy? And the pregnancy health movement needs to rise up with one voice and say yes, and that is going to require our donors to step up and also our donor base to grow. Absolutely. Is it no time to be on the sidelines? Now's the time to get fully invested in this battle because we have a real opportunity to win it and we shouldn't shrink away. We ought to double down. Awesome. Can't say it better. Uh, the church, the, the pregnancy health movement, I think it already has risen up. It's the, it's the church that's going to need to join yes. the pregnancy health movement in even greater force and, and to a greater degree. That's going to be the answer. Thank you so much, Mark. Amen. I really appreciate your time. Grateful for the opportunity to visit and look forward to doing it again. We'll have to do this again sooner. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jarrell. God bless you, sir. Hey, Mark, can you tell us if you have a website or someplace that people can reach you and get more information about speaking or your book? Yes. Um, you can go to speakerforlife.com. I wasn't cool enough to use the number four. So it's actually S-P-E-A-K-E-R-F-O-R-L-I-F-E, life.com. And also, Jarrell, you mentioned people might want to get these books. We've had a number of uh, pregnancy help organizations want to buy the books in bulk. If you want to do that, please don't do that on Amazon. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg. We have a book pricing for people who want to get the book and hand them out to um, ministry leaders uh, in their area. So all they have to do is contact us through Speaker for Life, and we can get that information out to them. Awesome. Thank you. Well, hey, thanks for your time today. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode, be sure to hit subscribe. And uh, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Pregnancy Help Podcast. <laughs>